Hi, this is Tom Compton of We Hold These Truths. You're listening to the Unheralded News and Review and Pharisee Watch, brought to you by We Hold These Truths at whtt.org on the web. Each week we look into the events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast for Pharisee Watch and Unheralded News, we're going to continue on with the Operation Cast Lead. Last week's piece was entitled Operation Cast Lead, It's Zionese for Burning People. And this week we want to discuss an article in Haritz, the Israeli newspaper, and it's available online. This is a piece that's entitled, On Anniversary of Gaza War, We Will Remember IDF Soldiers Who Destroyed Palestinian Families. And this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek piece, but it is very powerful. I'm going to have Leslie read it for us, if you would, please, Leslie. On an anniversary of Gaza War, we will remember IDF soldiers who destroyed Palestinian families. Amira Haas, Haaretz, Israel, May 1st, 2012. Military prosecution says, will take no legal steps against those responsible for deaths of Samuni family killed in their home during Operation Cast Lead. On the third anniversary of the Cast Lead onslaught, we remember the anonymous soldiers who fired on a red car in which a father, Mohammed Sharab, and his two sons were returning home from their farmlands. It is not fair that the officer who then served as GOC Southern Command of the Israel Defense Forces, Major General Yoav Gallant, will be the only one remembered on this anniversary. Indeed, the list of fighters who should be mentioned and recalled is long. We will remember the pilot who delivered the bomb that killed Mahmoud Al-Ghul, a high school student, and his uncle Akram an attorney at the family's home in northern Gaza. We will remember the soldiers who analyzed photographs taken by drones who decided that a truck conveying oxyacetylene cylinders for welding owned by Ahmad Samour was carrying grad rockets, a decision that led to an order to bomb the vehicle from the air, which in turn led to the deaths of eight persons, four of them minors. We will remember the soldiers who turned the Abu Ida family home in eastern Jabalia into a base and place from which to shoot, and confined in one room an elderly invalid, a blind woman, and two older women. We will remember how these soldiers did not allow these four persons to go to the restroom for nine days. We will remember the soldiers who herded members of the Samuni family into one house and were themselves positioned 80 meters from it when it was shelled with all its residents inside. Under orders from Brigade Commander Ilan Malka, someone else, whom we will remember, of course. 
The list goes on and on, and we ask forgiveness from those we haven't cited due to lack of space. But on this occasion, we shall especially remember the soldiers at a certain post in the eastern part of Khan Yunus. On Saturday, January 17, 2009, at 8.46, a day before the cessation of the attacks, I received the following letter from the United States in my inbox. Quote, My father and two brothers were attacked yesterday, Friday, January 16th, while driving home from their farm. One brother, Kasab 27, died, but the father, Mohammed Sharab 64, and the remaining brother, Ibrahim, 17, are now wounded and stranded in an Israeli defense force-controlled area. They were attacked between 1 and 1.30 p.m. local time during the ceasefire time, and emergency services are unable to reach them, unquote. The IDF did not allow an ambulance to approach this area, the letter writer, Amr Sharab believed that media pressure would help bring about such authorization. Quote, We are very desperate and trying as many avenues as possible to get aid to reach them. If you know even a foot soldier who might be able to push the ball by calling a local commander, we would really appreciate any help, unquote, he wrote. Sharab did not know that while he was writing this desperate appeal to a person he did not know, his second brother was already dead after bleeding in his father's arms for ten hours. The bereaved brother also did not know that from 6 a.m. that same Saturday, Tom, a field worker for the Physicians for Human Rights nonprofit organization, was in touch with me. This was a case of death on via live broadcast until the battery of the father's cell phone went dead. Sharab phoned his relatives in Gaza and the United States, as well as the Red Crescent and the Red Cross, Tom from PHR and local journalists. The humanitarian ceasefire, as it was called by the IDF, had lasted on that Friday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The father, who was driving, and his two sons passed an IDF checking position and were allowed to continue on. Around 1 p.m., they reached the Abu Zaidan supermarket in the Al-Fukari neighborhood in eastern Khan Yunus, whose residents had fled at the start of the ground attack. The neighboring house, the largest building on the street, had been turned into an army base two weeks beforehand. Shots were fired from this base at the Shurab car. Wounded in his chest, Kassab got out of the jeep, collapsed, and died. Ibrahim jumped out of the vehicle and was then wounded in his leg by unrelenting gunfire. 
The father was wounded in the arm, but managed to drag his surviving son to a nearby wall. He saw a tank and soldiers coming and going. The soldiers could see him. At 11 p.m., ten hours after the shooting, still pinned against the wall, the father noticed that his bleeding son was becoming cold and that his breathing was becoming labored. He managed to carry his son back to the gunshot-riddled vehicle, hoping it would be warmer there. But half an hour after midnight, between Friday and Saturday, the son drew his last breath in his father's arms. All this occurred some 50 to 100 meters from the soldiers. Periodically, the newly bereaved father spoke on the phone with Tom, who, stationed in his Tel Aviv home throughout the night, joined the Red Cross in efforts to persuade the army to allow an ambulance to come immediately to the scene. The European Gaza Hospital is located some two kilometers, a one- or two-minute ride from this area. Around 9.30 Saturday morning, Tom was informed that the IDF had given authorization for the ambulance to come at noon that day. At the time, the IDF spokesman relayed that, quote, in general, during the ceasefire, the IDF opened fire only when rockets were fired at Israel or shots were fired at the IDF. We are unable to investigate and retrieve the facts of every incident or to verify or deny each piece of information that is brought to our attention. The ambulance's entry was allowed only after an assessment was made of the situation in the field and a decision was reached that operational conditions allowed such entry. The wounded persons were evacuated by the Palestinian Health Ministry and brought to the hospital in Rafah. I well remember those anonymous soldiers who destroyed the Sharab family. Upon my arrival at the site on January 24th, I discovered they had left behind not only the usual images of destruction and the routine filth, at the Palestinian home from which they fired shots against this family, they also left behind the inscription, quote, Kahane was right, unquote. Thank you. And this reference to Kahane was right is referring to a Jewish rabbi by the name of Martin David Kahane, who lived from 1932 to 1990. He was also known as Mayor Kahane. This is according to Wikipedia. And he was killed by a, an Egyptian, uh, reportedly. And the, the bottom line here, of course, what he advocated was that the democracy, quote-unquote, in Israel was not possible with a mix of people there, Muslims, Christians, Arabs, and so his solution was to uh, actually physically remove all the Palestinians from the area. So that's what this illusion is referring to. Chuck? This story by Amira Hess 
is touching and it's not unusual. And there's a related story that goes with it that has a lot more detail about this one family that she mentioned, the last family that she mentioned, where uh, 21 members of the same family were killed in a one or two room house. And uh, in that story, which is a related story on Haaretz, it goes into good detail uh, about how the Israelis uh, military uh, evacuated this three-story house in which this particular family lived and put them into a family, uh, a house across the road. They commandeered their house as a command post and put them into a little house across the road, 80 yards away, and then allowed the Israeli military to bombard the house, which was completely crammed full of all of this, this huge extended family. And some did survive, but they killed 21 in that particular house. And, and Emira Hess was making mention of this Sharab family in her story. The relationship of this to previous article last week entitled Operation Cast Lead Means Burning People, this is essentially a case of the brutality, the kind of brutality that we were talking about. As writer, I concluded that the, the reason cast lead is so named is probably because it comes from a story in the Talmud, which is, of course, the ugly book of Judaism. And in the Sanhedrin, it describes how one kills his worst enemies by burning them to death, not externally, but internally, by pouring molten lead down their throats. And the story is very vivid. And it does come from the Talmud, and there's a series of these stories of all the ways that you brutally kill your worst enemies, including stoning. And that is really what Operation Cast Lead was doing to the people in Gaza, was systematically humiliating them and brutally destroying them. And these stories that this lady related to us, as Amara has, about a father having to sit all night with his dying son because they won't let him leave, and they won't send an ambulance to help him, is very typical of what has gone on in all these Israeli wars. And it is, unfortunately, the brutality that is taught to that military, and we need to understand that. They, it, it is a brutal military. They love to say that they're humane, and they argue vehemently if you say they're not, but their brutality has been documented over thousands of these cases over the years, and it's very sad people won't recognize it. Chuck, I might mention a, a corollary to this story here as reported by the Israeli Committee Against Housing Demolition, founded by Jeff Halpert, and has done a fantastic job of challenging the Israel state. But he's come, the, the organization has come out with a booklet that's entitled The Judaization of Palestine. And so this kind of is a corollary with this Rabbi Kahane that the only way to, to establish the quote-unquote Israeli-Jewish democracy is to get rid of all the Arabs in the area. And so what they've done, and they've tried to intercede uh, and have even rebuilt houses uh, in the West Bank, but here's what he had to say. He quoted Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This was made during his May 
2011 address to the U.S. Congress. And here's what Netanyahu had to say, quote, Israel will never, now you're talking about the Jordan Valley, I should give a little bit of background here, which is which is a little more evident down here. It's like 29% of the West Bank in area that's controlled by the Israeli military. And here's what Netanyahu had to say, quote, Israel will never cede the Jordan Valley. Israel would never agree to withdraw from the Jordan Valley under any peace agreement signed with the Palestinians. And it's vital, absolutely vital, that Israel remain a long-term military presence along the Jordan River, unquote. Running the length of the West Bank, the Jordan Valley covers 29% of the West Bank. Prior to 1967 occupation, that was the 1967 war, some 320,000 Palestinians lived there. But according to a recent survey by the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics, fewer than 65,000 remain today. And so we're seeing this squeeze on the Palestinians from many angles. And, of course, what's amazing is that so many people are so blind to it, particularly our Christian Zionist, we call bloodthirsty brothers in Christ, that have literally turned a blind eye to what's going on from the Operation Cast Lead to what's the expansion of the settlements in the West Bank area that is continuing on. And there are, thank goodness, there are groups like the Israeli Committee Against Housing Demolition and Haritz. They they uh, are in counterbalance to the insane policies of the Israeli government. And much as our government is doing insane things with drones, this story that Chuck, the last story that it was alluding to, they talked about a drone hit that they claim was a mistake because they, the control room didn't have a good picture and it looked like these guys were launching a Qassam rocket or they were going to, but they were actually getting wood so they could heat themselves. And it's amazing that the uh, efforts, the Israel government and its minions all around the world here in the United States do to try to perpetuate the myth that the Israeli Defense Force is the most moral army in the world. Yes, in the case of this uh, particular family with 21 people, that actually did uh, arouse enough attention, including in the Goldstone report. So there was supposedly an investigation, and uh, Israel, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces managed to drag out that investigation for about two years. And at the end, they concluded that they would not charge anyone uh, with, uh, with the murder of the uh, Simone family. And they simply shrugged their shoulders and what it really amounts to is they drag out a, they drag the issue out long enough so people largely forget it and then they just dismiss it. That's the case here. The commander who actually called in the artillery attack on this house is still under investigation, and they'll have to spend a couple more years before they slap his hand, and he's probably still on active duty as far as I know. So this is 
standard stuff. It's the brutality of war, but not just any war. It's the brutality of the Israeli wars, uh, even worse than our own in Afghanistan and places like that. And we're seeing this same kind of callousness now being displayed by our own people over and over again, and, of course, the negative effect, effect on themselves. Uh, there is a group in Israel that's uh, very much persecuted, and they are the silent no more or breaking the silence group, and their former military, Israeli military personnel who actually are trying to tell the truth about what's happened. And it's probably very good for their conscience to do that because it's a sort of a confession might be good for them. However, they don't get far in Israel because they're so good at repressing uh, thought uh, of any kind that they don't like, even if it's coming from their own Jewish-Israeli citizens. Okay, well, I think that will wrap up our program for today. A lot of food for thought there. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.